Please take out your worksheet. Number 22, believe it or not, 22 of these meetings. Temple maintenance. Temple maintenance. Now, if you've noticed, I'm sure you've picked up that each and every night there's been a health feature, a physical health thing, not just a spiritual. Now, you might have come into these meetings thinking like, I came here to know spiritual things. Why do they keep talking about health? Why do they keep talking about physical things? Why do they keep talking about, just tell me the things that have to do with my soul, right? Well, that bubble might have burst when we told you that you don't have a soul. You are a soul. And all of our body, all that we are, physical, mental, social, everything belongs to the Lord. And tonight we're going to see, tonight we're going to start a, uh, just a couple of practical things. Of course, we're coming in for a landing this weekend. Believe it or not, we wrap these meetings up. Friday night, we're going to have an important appeal. I've been telling you about it a long time. We're going to be having an appeal on Friday night. Then Sabbath morning, we're going to have our final meeting together. Um, hopefully, well, not our final, final meeting of this series. Hopefully, we'll continue to meet long after that. But our final meeting of this series will be Sabbath morning. And in these intervening nights before that time, I'm going to talk on just a couple of issues of practical Christian living. Now, there are lots of things we could talk about. We could talk about having wholesome, healthy language come out of our mouths, right? Christians should not use foul language or take the names of the Lord God in vain. And we should have a whole sermon about how God has given us a mouth and we should be using it to his glory and honor, okay? Or we could have a whole sermon about uh, financial responsibility. You know that the Lord talks a lot about money, both Old and New Testament. Principles for uh, responsibility, not being in debt, all these different. We could have a whole meeting about that. Maybe sometime we will. We could have a meeting about uh, what's, what's some, uh, sexual purity. Infidelity is a big problem. We want to be pure. We, don't want to, uh, we want to keep God's law and all kinds of things in our personal relationships. But here's the issue with picking something like that. I'm guessing that for the most part, you already agree with those things. I'm guessing if I stood up as a preacher of the gospel and said, you know, you should not take the Lord and your God's name in vain, you're not going to say... Now, wait a minute. You've got to show me that in Scripture. Odds are you're like, yeah. <laughs> you know? And you just sit there and nod and agree and amen. I'd feel great. Oh, everybody agrees with me. Must be doing a great job. Right? Or you could do the same thing with financial responsibility. If I said, you probably shouldn't live $100,000 in debt. Nobody's going to be like, no, I think that might actually be a good idea. You know? Nobody's going to really question that. What I want to hit on just on these next two nights are something that you might have questions about. Tonight is going to be something about the inside of your body, health and how you take care of this body that the Lord has given you that is open to some sort of discussion right now. Different people have different ideas of what health means, and we need to see what does the Bible actually teach about how to take care of the inside of our bodies. And tomorrow night, we're going to talk about the outside of our bodies. Does the Lord give any instruction about things like what we should wear and how we should present ourselves? Does the Lord talk about both the inside and the outside of our body, or is Christianity just merely big theory about big ideas, or does it come and hit home inside and outside of our bodies? So tonight, by the way, I want to illustrate this. There's a, well, you know what? I'm going to save that tomorrow night. You'll get it tomorrow night. That means you have to come back. It's a good story, though. You're going to love it. But before we turn to get to tonight's, let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for another day of life, for an opportunity now to come together in fellowship and enjoy each other's company, but most importantly, to learn the truths from your word. Lord, let everything that I say tonight be just that, the truth from your word. Let my opinions not slide in. Let, let it be clear that what we are presenting is founded solely on the scripture alone. And Lord, to that end, help it not to be mere theory, but help it to find a root in our lives, an application in our daily endeavors as we live to be your people both inside and out, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 2. This is a very brief review, but there's an off chance that you've forgotten what we talked about that evening or that you were not here for that evening. So I'm going to set the table this way. Lay the foundation in Genesis chapter 2 for our message tonight, Temple Maintenance. And Why do we title it that? Well, we'll get there in just a moment. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we find this passage about the creation of man. It says here, And the Lord God formed man of the what? dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's to say he wasn't a living being, then God brought the dust and the breath together, and that combined makes a living being. 
or as the King James Version would tell you, a living soul. So go right there to your first fill in the blank. Again, this is review, but you don't have a soul. You are a soul. Now, for tonight, we're going to extend what that means. Now, what does it, what's some practical application of that? Thus, physical health and spiritual health are not independent of each other or separate from each other. These are not two separate worlds. We are a soul, and that soul is combined of the breath of God and the body he's given us, right? He created for us. He formed in his image. So physical health and spiritual health are completely intertwined. They are not independent of each other. Now, where do we come up with this title, Temple Maintenance? Well, we picked it up from Jesus himself. Let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, page 1027 in your pew Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth book of the New Testament. I have a pastor friend who doesn't like to call it the Old and New Testament. He calls the Old Testament the New Testament and the New Testament the Newer Testament, right? But it's all the New Testament because we didn't have it before. God gives it to us. John chapter 2. Page 1027 in your pew Bible. We're going to start with verse 19. Jesus has another interaction with some people who are questioning him. And it says here, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this, what? Temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? By the way, there's a whole interesting sermon. Why did Jesus say this at this time? I mean, you find out it's later this statement would be rehashed, revisited, and twisted around so that at his trial, which by the way was a mock trial from start to finish, right? But he could get, they could scrape together enough witnesses to say, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. So he's a risk. He needs to be put out, of his, put out of the way, right? But is this what Jesus was talking about? Is he talking about the temple in the, in the courts and, the, and all the buildings and the edifice physically? No. What was he talking about? The Bible tells us exactly what he was talking about. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. Jesus referred to his physical body as a what? Temple. He referred to it, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they were thinking of the big building, the edifice. You're talking about this temple? Take 46 years. But the Bible clearly says, when he said temple, he was speaking of his own body. Now, Jesus laid that groundwork, and it seems like other writers, particularly the Apostle Paul, picked up on that metaphor, that analogy, that the physical body is a temple, and he runs with it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 19. Now, in the immediate context, you'll notice that he's talking about not diet and exercise, but he's talking about uh, sexual purity and fleeing fornication. But those are still physical acts he's talking about. And he goes on to say in verse 19, as though it's just a common sense principle, do you not know that your what? Body is the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and therefore you are what? Now, there's a couple points I want to hear. Number one, We are not our own. We didn't make ourselves to start with, right? Even if we rejected Christ's offer of redemption and salvation, would God still have a patent on our body? Yeah, he formed it from the dust of the ground. He's got his seal on it right there. Boom, it's his. So just by the fact that he created us at all, he owns us by rights. But furthermore... He came, once we sold out of that arrangement and gave ourselves over to Satan, he came back and bought us back again with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we are twice his if we claim to be Christians. Once by creation and and again by redemption. So this idea is underscored here that Paul says, you are therefore not your own. 
People say, well, I have an allegiance to the Lord. I, I'll keep my spiritual health up to date, but my body I can do. No, 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 no. See, this, to go a little bit deeper, there might be a f- couple people in the room who like the deeper stuff. We're going to take off the floaties and go into the deep end for just a minute. Okay. There is sometimes a very subtle acceptance of an unbiblical picture in our minds. And that unbiblical picture is that, again, I have a soul, and it is eternal, it is spiritual, it lives in the clouds, it will go on after my body, and then there's the rest of me that's physical. You know, like my heart, my fingers, my head, my eyeballs, and my knees, and all this kind of stuff. That's the, that's the stuff of this earth. And so it really doesn't matter what I do in the body as long as my spirit is healthy. And we've accepted, and here's that deeper part, a dualistic anthropology. Dual means there's two parts, right? And an understanding of humanity and anthropology that we are two parts, but the Bible clearly says we are one. You are a soul. And thus Paul employs that and says, wait a minute, your physical body is just as much a part of your spiritual life as is your mind, as is your decisions, as everything else. So he applies that in this context to sexuality. Don't think that you can be living sexually one way and still be spiritual. No, 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 no. You can't divorce the two. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple? And who's the temple of? The Holy Spirit, who is in you. Which I love the question, does the Holy Spirit have a body? Yes, yours. (laughs) He has a body, and apparently it's your job to care for it to make it a place, a sanctuary, a holy place for him to dwell in, right? It's a temple. That's where Paul comes up. Again, look at it in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He goes on, verse 20. For you were bought at a price. And by the way, how expensive is the blood of Jesus? There's no value you can put it. There's no price tag you could ever place upon the blood of Jesus. It's a very high price. I've heard it said, grace is free, but it certainly isn't cheap. Right? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He makes this case that you don't just have a physical and spiritual, you have all of this intertwined is you and you have a responsibility to God. He makes this pace again, if you back up a book, to Romans, page 1095 in your pew Bible, Romans chapter 12. He again makes this case for Christian living. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, which again means to plead, to beg, I urge you, Please, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, Jesus Christ died the death that we should have died, right? He was the sacrifice that died. But we are still supposed to be a sacrifice, just the one that lives. Apparently, we're supposed to take the death of Jesus Christ and apply it in our lives so that we then become a living sacrifice Present your bodies a living sacrifice in what condition? Holy. Acceptable to God. And he goes on to say, which is your reasonable service? This only makes sense. It's logical. You're not your own. And again he goes on, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you've got to learn what the Lord wants from his word, make application in your life, physically in your body, and therefore you're not conformed to the world, but you're transformed by the word. You see, there's a contrast here. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the word. By the way, the word and the world both want to change you, Right? Both the Word and the world want to change you. Both want to create you into their own image. The choice is ours. Do we want to be made in the image of the world? Or do we want to be remade, transformed into the image of God? 
So he says, I beseech you, I urge you, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Lay yourself down and let the Lord transform you into the image of Jesus in which you were originally created to be. Powerful. Now, back to 1 Corinthians. Paul, again, speaks to this issue and he lays down this beautiful little principle. Romans chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 1105, and verse 13, uh, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, that is the, um, that is the incorrect text there. Talk amongst yourselves for just a minute. There it is, verse 31. Correct your notes. 13 is wrong. 31 is correct. Just switch the numbers there. They'll cut it out of the tape. They'll insert everyone saying, Amen, and then we'll go on. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, as we've said all along. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, how? To the glory of God. Apparently there's a way, and again, he wasn't talking about just diet and exercise in this passage either, but he was talking about the things that you do in this life with your physical body. And he says, look, whatever you eat, or that you drink, or for that matter, whatever it is you do, make sure you do it to the glory of God. Which implies there are things that you can do that are not to God's glory. Right? Again, this eliminates this concept, well, as long as I'm spiritual, as long as I believe something in my head, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, or whatever my heart feels, then my body is separate. No, 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 you're one being. And he says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, or in fact, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, which in this immediate context implies that there is a way to eat and drink that glorifies God. And there's a way to eat and drink that dishonors God. Now, This would make sense, especially if the Lord, you know, were to tell us what to eat and drink, which handily enough, he does. Thank you for that. Now, if he didn't, we would say, well, just pray and hope that the Holy Spirit would inspire you, you know, learn some healthy tips or something. But what's good about this is we don't have to guess what the Lord's will is for our physical body. He lays it out in Scripture, step by step by step. So that's what we're going to do tonight. By the way, 3 John, while we're in the New Testament, let's just flip over to 3 John. Chapter 1, page 1172 in your pew Bible. 3 John, chapter 1. And notice what his prayer for the believers was in his time. This is the uh, 3 John, chapter 1 and verse 2, page 1172. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in what? all things. He doesn't just say, I hope you have a good spiritual life. No. I, I pray that you prosper in all things and be what? In health. Just as your soul prospers. Right? Just as you spiritually are flourishing and healthful, I, re- I want the same thing for your physical too. I want you to know that those go together. They're intertwined. That was the prayer of his heart. So let's go back. As we do with every big thing in Scripture, it begins at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 26, a passage we've looked at frequently, but we're going to go past where we usually stop and where I would guess most people usually stop, and we're going to see what else the Lord said. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. We're going to find three Bible diets. Three Bible diets recorded in Scripture. We're going to start with the first one because, you know, that makes sense. And then we're going to go on from there. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is day six of the creation week. God said, let us make man, how? In our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God did what he said, and he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God did what? Blessed them and said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he makes man and woman in his image, complementary to each other, gives them dominion over the planet, and they're the head honcho. Now they can decide for themselves. But now look at the other instruction the Lord gives them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We're very familiar with that. But look at the very next verse. What else does he say to them? And God said, in addition to that, and God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields what? Seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for what? Now notice he doesn't say that when he's bringing all the animals before him. Hadn't he done, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2 and you can read that story, how the Lord God brings all these different animals before him and what is he supposed to do with them? Eat them or name them? <laughs> name them. He doesn't say, oh good, you're going to be, uh, you know, Terry the rhinoceros. Now I'm going to eat you. No, 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 that's never there. He names them, they go about their merry way, right? Because the Lord didn't say, these are for food, these are, these are for other things. But this, he said, I'm going to point to you and say, this to you is food. Now, wouldn't it be great if the Lord did that in our cupboards? Or when you're going out to eat or when you're at the grocery store, you just pray, Lord, all right, show me what I should eat here. Perfect. I can almost guarantee you he's going to take you right past, you know, some certain aisles and just say, don't even look down those, right? Let's start with that one that's all cool and crisp at the front, the produce area. That's what we're going to start with, right? In fact, why don't you just live here for a while? Stay here. This is good for you, right? This is, and he points to him. He said, this stuff over here, this is food. And he gave them all the criteria. Every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Now, continuing on, verse 30. Also, so you think, oh, I guess the animals eat the animals. No. Verse 30. And also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. So you notice the, the things with seed in it, the fruit and the abundance of the plants, those are the things that humans were supposed to eat, and the animals were supposed to eat the plants themselves, the herb that grows on the ground, right? Then he goes on to say, uh, and every bird, I'm sorry, and every bird of the air and everything that creeps in the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And then we read in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I'm guessing we read these or hear these passages read all the time. God created man in his image. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the earth. And he saw all that he saw was good. And we skip right over the food part. Why? It's right there in Scripture. It's right there in Scripture. Let's turn our worksheet. Look at the fill in the blank. Please notice what these passages tell us. The original Eden ideal. The original state. Before sin entered the world... Humans and animals were both vegetarians. Right there from Scripture. Humans and animals were both vegetarians. So man's original idea, a diet was made up of fruits and grains and nuts. The stuff that grows above the ground that has the seed in it, this is what he's supposed to have. Basically, you could simplify it even further down, men ate the food above the ground while the animals ate the food on the ground. Okay? There's, there was no mention of tilling and getting down in the soil and planting things. He's like, if it grows up and it has a fruit in it, that's for food for you. Okay? And the herb itself, that's for the animals. So you've got the above-ground food, that's for us. The on-the-ground food, that's for the animals. And that's how it was supposed to be. What a simple way to live, by the way. Wouldn't it be great? You know, you eat a beautiful, healthy, beautiful peach. Mm, what do you do with the seed? Drop it in the ground. Oh, it makes another tree. Oh, this is great. It's a beautiful, it's, uh, it's it, talk about organic and all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's so cutting edge. But that was the original ideal. Of course, we know something happened. Genesis 1 and 2 don't last very long, and we turn into Genesis chapter 3. We have the fall into sin, and it brings us this problem. By the way, I want to slide this in in Genesis chapter 3 as we're studying this. Notice verse 22. It says in chapter 3 and verse 22, 
Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Of course, this is after they've sinned. To know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of what? Life. And eat and live forever. So even though they had this beautiful Eden ideal diet, it wasn't just the fruits, grains, and nuts that kept them alive. They had the eternal life, life in perpetuity forevermore, as long as they continued to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Verse 24 says, um, well, I'm sorry, verse 23 just continues, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now, why did he go out to till the ground? Well, we go back, well, we'll see that in just a minute, but he drives man out, verse 24, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Eden, east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I want to highlight this point in our, in our, the bottom of the page there. No diet keeps people alive forever. Even in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just the diet alone of eating fruits, grains, and nuts and all this healthy vegetarian food. The thing that kept them alive forever was the, the tree of life, eating from the tree of life. And thus, in order to unplug that life, they separate them from the tree of life. And they had a nice long life, as far as long, length of life is concerned from our perspective. But this is my point. Eternal life has always, and you could insert there, will always remain a gift from God. Eternal life. When I don't want to give the impression that, boy, if I just eat enough healthy stuff, if I drink just enough water, if I do this, that I'm going to somehow live forever. No, you're not. Right? The wages of sin is death, and we're all subject to it. We don't have access to the tree of life. Someday he will restore that access, and this mortal will put on immortality, praise the Lord. But even in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't the diet itself that made them inherently They didn't just live on out of their own. They had to have a gift from God to give them eternal life. Now, I believe, however, that if we go back closer to that Eden ideal, that he will extend this life and give us not just more quantity of life, but give us better quality of life, that we can start living closer to that ideal. But diet is not salvation. Jesus Christ is salvation. Can we clear on that? All right. Now, now that's not to say, well, good, now I can just go eat pizzas and burgers. Slow down. (laughs) Let's just see what the Scripture says. Now, Still in chapter 3, let's go back to verse 17. Why did the Lord have him go and till the ground? Well, let's go back and see what one of the consequences of sin was. Genesis chapter 3, now verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because now he's already spoken to the serpent, he's spoken to the woman, and now he speaks to Adam. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife... now." pause here. That doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to our wives, right? However, if your wife is telling you to do something contrary to the law of God, you should listen to the law of God, right? And this is exactly the Adam. He said, God said, you shall not eat. And she says, hey, here, eat. And he says, because you heeded the voice of your wife and ate and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. So he curses the earth itself. Something gets cursed for Adam's sake to teach him a lesson. Something's going to change about Adam because the Lord's cursing the ground. Okay? Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now remember, he used to have the stuff above ground. Just walk around eating the fruit off the trees and all these grains that are high up. And it was great. But now you have to be down in the ground. Notice this. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the way, it's not going to be the same ground either. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So not everything is your friend anymore. You're going to have to discern, oh, this one's harmful. This one's good. This was bad. This, is, this one's dangerous. Oh, it's got prickly thing. I don't want to eat that. It might have poison. You know, who knows what? But things have changed physically on the ground. Again, verse 18, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Well, who was supposed to originally eat the herb of the field? Animals, right? So you notice there's a, as you want to call it, the food chain. I don't mean that evolutionary-wise, right? But the food chain that God established, you now, mankind takes a step down. 
you now will eat the herb of the field. Now, it doesn't say that animals are going to begin eating each other. It doesn't mention animals at all in here. But it does make the statement that man, humanity, now will eat what at that point was considered animal food. Step down the chain. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It's weird they weren't ever eating bread before, right? But now we've got to sweat all this stuff up, raise it up, and we've got to cook and process and make it. It's a pain now. Literally pain. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And why does he make this consequence for Adam? For out of it you were what? Taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. One of the more interesting tidbits about this, the consequences, the curses and consequences, number one, only the serpent and the ground get cursed. The man and the woman don't get cursed. The serpent and the ground are going to be destroyed someday. Okay? The serpent forever, the ground will be remade. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, but the, the earth and the serpent get cursed. But the man and the woman both have consequences to deal with. Right? There's opportunity for redemption, but if you notice, both of their consequences tie them more intimately, more closely to that from which they were taken. All of the woman's consequences tie her closer to the man, and all the man's consequences tie him closer to the ground. And he says why? For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. But remember the temptation? No, 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 you can be like God. God's like, friend, no, you're not. <laughs> You are a created being. You're going to be closer to the ground, work the ground. It's going to be tough. And then you're going to die and go back to the ground. I'm going to give you a time of probationary time here. I'm going to allow you to continue to live, but it's going to be difficult now. You're going to be tied more intimately to the ground. I just think that's fascinating how the Lord works that way. But notice here in our fill-in-the-blank, the post-fall ideal. There's still an ideal. Notice again that God gives them instruction about what to eat even after sin enters the world. Though man was tied more closely to the ground, after sin, humans were still vegetarians. Even after sin, the ideal that God established for them was vegetarianism. Man's diet now consisted not only of the fruit of plants, but also the plants themselves. Basically, that's a demotion down to animal food at that point. Now, the third diet that the Bible outlines, and again I say outlines because I don't know that it necessarily recommends, but it does allow for this third step. Let's go to the book of Genesis still, chapter 9. All three of these diets are found in Genesis, so if anybody says, I'm going to go back to the Genesis diet, you have to say, which one? Okay, Genesis chapter 9, that's going to be page 7 of your pew Bible. Here Noah steps out of the ark, and much like Adam and Eve, he gets the same for his wife, and he gets the same instruction that Adam and Eve were given when they first made the planet. Now this is the planet after it's been washed pure, and you have them coming out of the boat, and it says in chapter 9, verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds familiar, yes? Okay. And the f- and that is, but the notice this now. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. Why would that be? Why are they going to be afraid of people now? Well, it says, they are given into your hand. Okay, so they're given to you. Now, wasn't he already given dominion over all the earth? Yeah. But something has changed. Well, I think we looked at the next verse to see what the big change is. Every moving thing that lives shall be what? Food for you. Mm. Every living thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, let me ask you a question. Was man eating the green herbs his original ideal? No. It was a concession because of sin, because of their situation, right? And now he says, just like you had that step down now, that step down then, just like I did then, now we're going to do a third step. Now you can eat animals. You can eat meat. 
and they're going to understand that, and they're going to run away from you, right? <laughs> just like the ground was going to work against you with thistles and thorns and briars, you're going to have to till the ground. Now, the, it's not like they're just going to walk up to you and offer themselves up. You've got to go get them, right? This is going to be basically the next step down, interestingly enough. But it says in verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So if you were to eat meat, there are restrictions about this. Now let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks. After the flood, God allowed people to eat meat. I want to be clear about this. God does allow this. But the very next thing I also want to be clear on, this allowance, however, included certain restrictions or limitations. It was not an unqualified anything that you see you can eat. Well, it seems like it in there, because you could read verse 3 and say, aha, anything that moves. If it had a mom, it's going to be dinner. Right? People But is that what it's written? No, because look at verse 4. Again, but you shall not eat, what? The blood. So you can eat it, but you can't eat it with the blood still in it. Got to take that out. Okay? Now, also, there's another restriction. Again, chapter 7, before he gets onto the boat, just go back a couple of chapters. Before Noah enters the ark, or at least before the floods start to come, and as the animals are entering the ark, by the way, every Hollywood movie you see about Noah and the ark, almost every single one is wrong. Noah and his sons didn't go fetch the animals. <laughs> They came to him, right? The Lord designed this boat. He told the flood was coming. He brought the animals. Their job was to build the boat and call people in. And the animals led the way, which if I were to imagine, okay, the name Methuselah should have put something in your head, right? Then Noah's preaching for 120 years. That should have lit up your eyeballs a little bit. Maybe this is real. Then he starts building this massive boat, Okay, he really believes what he's saying, but I don't know. I need to see some sort of supernatural evidence that there really is a God, that he can do this powerful flood thing. And all of a sudden you see all these animals come marching in. No human being, no lasso, no ropes, no nets, no prods, just orderly walking. I mean, think about it. You see cats working together on a project headed to a boat. I've never seen cats do anything orderly in my life. That must have said, and not just cats, but also dogs and, you know, rhinoceros and, and hippopotamus and, and giraffes and, and, and on and on and on and on. Like, hmm. Maybe he's up to something there. Chapter 7. Notice what Scripture says here. Starting with verse 2. You shall take with you seven each of every What? clean animal. Now, people right now, you're going to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Clean and unclean restrictions, those are for the Jews. That's part of the ceremonial law. Well, apparently not. The differentiation between clean and unclean was established long before any Jew walked the earth. This is before Abraham was even a twinkle in Abraham's grandfather's eye. It wasn't even there. Okay? Much the same way that one other institution we still keep called the Sabbath, instituted originally before there was any Jewish people around, any Israelite at all, and it continues to this day. You notice that here, this is before the Israelites were. This has nothing to do with the book of Leviticus. This is not about that, even though the book of Leviticus will go on and clarify what clean and unclean is. The establishment of clean and unclean was prior to Israel being a nation. Is that clear? Okay. Now, let's look at this. Verse 2. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are what? Unclean, a male and his female. So why would the Lord differentiate between clean and unclean animals? Because at this point, when they're entering the ark, they're not going in as food, right? But Apparently, as they step off of the boat, the Lord says, now, the earth has been wiped away. By the way, you know, go eat all the corn you can find. <laughs> you know, all the fruit that covers the, well, you just wiped everything out. It's like, oh, I didn't think about that. 
didn't God planned ahead. Said, look, and notice he brings more. Seven of each, pairs apparently. So you can think of 14, okay, of each of these. And then pairs of unclean. Fewer, far fewer unclean than there were of clean. And apparently as they get off the boat, there's two reasons why that is. Number one, the very first thing they're supposed to do is make a sacrifice of thanks to the Lord. And every sacrifice throughout the Bible is always clean. Always clean, which represents sinlessness, right? It points forward to Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is where Paul comes up with present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord. We're supposed to be pure even as he is pure. First, I mean, this is First John chapter 3. This is very simple. So clean is for sacrifice and also clean is for eating, as he will further elucidate and articulate in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But it's clear that the Lord, yes, allows them to eat meat, but he has certain restrictions, namely two. First of all, it has to be clean meat. And second of all, it has to be drained of its blood. Okay? Which I don't eat meat, but I can imagine that would take some of the interest away. It can't be juicy and bloody, and it has to be clean. So even if you want, pork chops are off. People are like, you know, I was with you on the Sabbath, but you're taking away my pork chops. Now I'm out the door. I'm not taking away your pork chops. The Lord is. That's the handy thing. I don't want my opinion told. I just want to read whatever the Scripture says and let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. Okay? But watch this. Let's continue. As the Bible... By the way, you can look this up in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. You can read the whole chapters if you'd like. It's some very interesting reading. But when the nation of Israel established is established, the Lord reiterates and clarifies and expounds on his law. For example, let's take the Ten Commandment law. Did the Ten Commandments come into existence at Mount Sinai? No. For instance, was there a thou shalt not kill way, way back in the beginning of Genesis? Yes. Otherwise, Cain wouldn't be in trouble, right? He slays his... Oh, I didn't know that was a rule. My bad. I thought we could just kill. No. No, it's clear. The Lord has these... But as they come up out of Egypt, he has to retrain them, re-give them. He gives them his law, clearly articulated, speaks it out loud, writes it down with his finger, gives it to Moses, hands it to them, right? In the same way, apparently these dietary laws existed before the nation of Israel, but as they come out of the land of Egypt, he clarifies it and gives them more and more... uh, 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 understanding of how to make application of those principles. So the principles previously established are clarified as policies for the Israelites. Do you see that? Okay, so let's take a look. By the way, just to real quickly summarize what you'll find in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, mammals must chew the cud and have split hooves. Birds must not be carrion eaters, that is, you know, eat dead things, or birds of prey. Fish must have scales and fins. By the way, if you're interested in reptiles, amphibians, and insects, they're almost entirely forbidden. Grasshoppers and locusts you can't eat. So, live it up. (laughs) People are like, you're taking away my chicken. No, 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 no. Eat all the insects you want, as long as they're grasshoppers and locusts. Like, ooh, that's gross. I'm fine with that being unclean, but that's clean. You're allowed that one, you know. By the way, again, for a more complete study on the clean and unclean animals, see Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy <coughs> chapter 14. But now let's talk about something else. We've talked about what the Lord wants us to eat. Or obviously, his original Eden ideal was that we never even till the ground at all. We just walk around and eat the fruit and all the grains that come up off the fruit, and the plants themselves would be eaten by the animals. We eat the stuff above the ground, they eat the stuff on the ground. Everyone's vegetarian, and it's literally the Garden of Eden. After sin enters the world, then there's a step down. Now, we eat the plants as well as the seeds, and we have to till the soil, so now we get potatoes and radishes and carrots, and we have to make the food, and we have to plant it, and we have to fight against the thistles and all this stuff. So it becomes much, much more labor-intensive. Apparently, the labor in the beginning was much more pleasant. Now it just stinks. That's part of the curse. But it's still vegetarian. Then you go to God's allowance after they come out of the 
ark. And that's why he prepared clean animals ahead of time so they would have sacrifice and clean animals ready. But even within that, he gives restrictions. You can eat this, but within these parameters. Okay? So now we've dealt with what the Lord God says you can eat. Now we're going to look at how you should eat. Not what should you eat, but how should you eat. And interestingly enough, the Bible does speak to this pretty clearly. It tells you how to eat, or better yet, how not to eat. Watch this. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 23. Basically, the principle we're going to espouse now is in that title, Don't Eat Like a King. Now, imagine there, if you're in an agricultural society, we don't have you know, the modern technology, we don't have the things we have today, we don't have the society that we have now, and most people live in a very humble way, and you can remember this, for instance, if, if you run into hard financial times, you start trimming back your budget, yeah? And there's certain things that start, little fancy things that kind of get whittled off, you just can't afford, right? And it strips you down to like rice and beans and peanut butter and the very basics, right? And, and whenever you're, ooh, I'm feeling fancy, then I'm going to get this nice big, but what if you were in a society where you could eat fancy every meal of the day? Well, in, in ancient society, not everyone could do that. In fact, most people lived a very humble, very simple, very agricultural kind of based life, and they ate the basic staples just as the Lord intended. But there were a few people, the nobles, the, 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 uh, the royalty, the kings, if you will, who could eat whatever they want whenever they wanted. Okay? Now, sadly enough, modern America has become, the Western world has become pretty much like we can all be kings if we want, Right? You drive down the road, you can have pretty much anything you want, any way you want it, any time you want it, as much as you want, blah, blah, blah. And I don't believe that's God's ideal for how we should eat. Notice here, chapter 23 in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 23 and verse 1. And I'm not saying this, the Scripture's saying this, right? But notice this. Page 627, Proverbs 23, 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler... Not as he didn't sit down to eat with anybody, but a ruler in particular. The implication is, ooh, it's going to be fine, big banquet, right? Anything you want. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Like when you sit down to eat at home, if they're serving that soup or that salad, you don't have to think that's what you get, right? But here you've got all these options. Don't just start, mmm, tearing through. He's like, before you eat, Think. I want to make clear, thinking before eating is a biblical principle. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Verse 2, I'm just going to read it to you from Scripture. And put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to what? Appetite. It's like if you look around, you're like, oh. he's like, you would be better off just putting, you know, threatening yourself. Like, I'm going to put a limit on myself, right? Put that knife right there. Why? Verse 3, do not desire his what? All those fancy, nice, rich foods. Oh, that's so good. I never get that. Eat it up. It's the only sermon I ever get to say. And get to say it a bunch, but it's fun. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are what? Deceptive food. It looks so good. It smells so good. When you put it in your mouth, it's probably going to taste so good. When it goes in, it's going to feel so good. But in the end, is it good? No. It's deceptive food. What's deception mean, by the way? It's lying to you. Right? This is, this is a difficulty. He says, so now we happen again. We live in a society where we can eat anything we want in any volume at any time. Friends, I think we should take Proverbs 23 a little bit more seriously. Say like, wait a minute, before I eat, let me think. Is this good food? Is this true food or is it deceptive food? Is it a food-like substance? <laughs> or is it actually food? I saw a doctor one time actually promoting a t-shirt that just simply says, eat food. 
How many of us eat things that are not actually food, but they're kind of food-like substances? You, like, you take apart the Twinkie bar and like, what would you say this is? I'm not really, oh, it tastes good, okay, but is it food? Well, it might be, who knows what it is really, but it's good. Eat food simply, healthfully. Consider what you're going to eat before you eat it. Ecclesiastes, by the way, this is not the only place it says this. Look at Ecclesiastes as you turn um, further to the right. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. This is written by, the, of course, these are all, these, this Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is written by the most brilliant man ever to live. The Lord inspired him, gave him wisdom above all. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, start with verse 17. He said, blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at what? The proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. They're eating to have fuel to go forward and do things, not just eating for pleasure and gluttony and drunkenness. He's like, you are a blessed land if you're led by leaders who eat at the right time and feast for strength and not for drunkenness. He continues on. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. It's almost as though he's talking about the temple is a, the body is a temple back then too, right? And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Don't worry, we got plenty of money, we're fine. This, to me, describes our current health situation in the Western world pretty much to a T. We eat anything we want, as much as we want, but don't worry, I've got health insurance. Don't worry, there's a hospital. Don't worry, I can pay for a pill. I can pay for an operation. I got money, it's fine. This is how they were thinking back. No, don't worry, it's fine. We've got money. No big deal. He said, apparently, that's not a good situation. Blessed, blessed are you if you don't have that in your land. Daniel, by the way, chapter 1, gives us a living example of this. Daniel chapter 1, as Daniel, you know, was taken into captivity along with his friends, they were scouring Jerusalem and Judea looking for the best of the best, not to kill them, but to turn them into leaders of the Babylonians. They were going to teach them their literature, give them their new names, teach them their religion, and make them a number one Babylonian examples, right? And so they took the best of the best, and then they were going to train them and make them even better. And of course, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart, oh no, I'm sorry, we've got to back up. Back up, back up, back up. Chapter 1, verse 3. Got to the punchline before we set it up. Then the king instructed Ashmaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Okay, so he wanted to start with good at the very beginning and then make it better, at least in his mind. Verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's what? Delicacies. We've already had a proverb about that, right? Watch out now with those delicacies. Don't, don't, don't play around with it. When you sit with a ruler, it's deceptive food. And Daniel had already made up his mind. They can call me whatever they want. They can make me read whatever book they want, but there is a line I will not cross. Okay, and he goes on. Again, verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine in which he drank, and three years of training for them. So they're supposed to eat this diet for three years, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among the, those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which you might know them more familiarly as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah and Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not devile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So that was his line in the sand. I'm not going to cross that line. 
Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, as it continues, Daniel asks for a special provision. It goes on in verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are of your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So notice what his concern was. If you turn down these delicacies, this rich, healthy wine, and all this good stuff, at least in their mind, right? You're going to end up being worse off than the other gentlemen. And Daniel said, no, no, it's the other way around. They're going to be worse off and will be better. And he says, let's make a test about it. So the, Daniel said to the steward, whom is the chief of the, of the eunuchs, had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. So you get these guys, he said, these gentlemen are going to, we know, they're going to come in here and they're going to gorge on the delicacies, on the wine, and on the food, and the fatty stuff. Oh, it's going to be great for them. They're going to love it. But let us just have a very simple vegetable and water diet. And in 10 days, you'll spot a difference. 10 days. That doesn't take that long. A week and a half. Just see what happens in it. You can imagine these guys have been drugged across the desert. They're famished and everything. And now they're given the royal treatment, literally. Sit at the king's, eat anything you want, as much as you want, anytime you want, any kind you want. Just eat and eat. And they do that for 10 days straight. When Daniel and his friends are... I'll just have vegetables. I'll just have water. And notice what happens. So, and he goes on in verse 13. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. You test. Just test our appearance. See if we don't come across as like, you know, less exhausted and healthier and fitter and happier. And at the end, so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days and at the end of the ten days, they, their features appeared better and fatter. Again, that's fatter in a healthy sense, like robust, not obese, that kind of thing. In flesh, than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Interesting. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Why did he come up with that? Because the Lord's word had already instructed it. He says, I'm going to live faithful to the Lord's principles even in this foreign place. And sure enough, the Lord's will was clear. By the way, speaking of wine, let's take just a few passages on this. Proverbs chapter 23 again. Because alcohol is mentioned in Scripture and it can be a confusing thing, but I'm going to tell you, give you some other principles that go along, just like the food. It also talks about drink. Proverbs 23, starting with verse 29. A series of rhetorical questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And the answer, those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. So what's the principle to be learned here? Do not look on the wine when it is red. Now again, in Scripture you have the word wine, both in Hebrew and Greek, same as fermented as unfermented, alcoholic and pure, right? Non-alcoholic. And it says, here's a simple principle, do not look at this juice of the vine, this wine, when it is what? When it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, right? It's fermented. Don't even look at it then. When it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly, why? Verse 32, because at the last it bites like a what? Serpent and stings like a viper. It's like it's going to go out to get you. Don't even look at it. Don't even mess around. Chapter 20, just a few pages before, same book, Proverbs now, chapter 20, tells us this counsel. Wine is a mocker. And what does a mocker do? <laughs> well, it mocks. <laughs> It makes fun, it teases, it taunts, it plays with you, right? Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. 
and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It does not make sense to go after this. And by the way, you can... We don't even have to have a sermon about this, but think about the destructive effects of alcohol in our society today. How many of those across the street in our facilities of incarceration are there in part due to drugs and alcohol? What percentage? How many lives do we personally know, perhaps have even personally lived, where alcohol and drugs and those kind of abusive things have been a nightmare, a terror in our own lives. Absolutely. How many fatalities on the roads? How many times do, do drinking involve? Anytime drinking's involved, you know something crazy is going to go on after. Something harmful, something detrimental. Oh, it seems smooth, it seems fun, it seems popular. It's just like the delicacies, but in the end, it's going to get you. And the biblical counsel is don't even look at it, stay away, be done with it. More scripture Habakkuk chapter 2. This is page 910 in your pew Bible. Habakkuk, chapter 2. Page 910 in your pew Bible. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness, Apparently, by the way, a lot of the uh, sexual misconduct that goes on is alcohol-related. This is not new news. This is old biblical. And he says, woe to you for that. Don't be an influence. Don't take it yourself. Don't offer it to others. Bad always follows. And of course, Revelation chapter 17, when it wants to describe the Antichrist power, Page 1185, it describes, when it wants to use picture language to describe an apostate, awful, terrible church, it uses the imagery of a woman, but a woman in what condition? Who's drunk. Notice this, Revelation 17, verse 5. And on our forehead was written, Babylon, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman, verse 6, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. And what was she drinking from? Of course, if you go back earlier, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her head a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. When the Bible wants to paint a picture of spiritual infidelity corporately, it says, here's a woman, and in her hand is this golden cup. And it's full of all these awful things, and she's making everybody drunk. It paints a picture of drinking and infidelity that should picturesquely register in your mind, hey, that's not good. We should not look at that image and say, that's something to emulate. Apparently, that's something to avoid. And it should drive us back to what should we be like. Of course, the answer is be like Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, page 1137. I believe that we're, again, I, I, I absolutely believe that we are living in the final days of earth's history and that Jesus is coming very, very soon. And in preparation for that, what condition do we want to be in? I, for one, want to be alert and sober and responsive and ready and clear-minded and faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Listen to the prayer on Paul's heart, and hopefully it's the prayer for each one of us tonight. Now may the grace of God, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how? Completely. Sanctify, that means make holy completely. Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, how? Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly believe that we're living in the days when Jesus is coming soon and very soon, yes, we should make spiritual preparation, but don't dissect spiritual from physical. 
Apparently, the Lord has an original ideal, and he wants to remold us into that image, and that includes what we do with our body. Yes, sexually, and what language comes out of our mouth, and what food goes into it, what drink goes into it, how we treat this temple. Apparently, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should maintain it as such. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. Now, it might have pierced to the heart. It might have caused a little irritation. It might have made you rethink a few things, but that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But my job is to present the biblical evidence and let you choose whom you will serve. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this great opportunity to come together to study your word, to see what it really says, and Lord, help us to be, (laughs) help us not just to read the scriptures, but help the scripture to read us. And in the light of 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 your truth, Lord, we ask that you would cut to the heart and cut away anything that is not glorifying to you and dishonors you in any way. But Lord, help us never to view ourselves as somehow distinct from our spiritual life, but we have this physical life we can do whatever we want with. No, 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 no. Help us to see that your word speaks to us in very personal application and help us more than just theory, Lord. Help it to become practical in our lives so that just like Daniel, when people see us, they can see some foretaste of the glory of God that we've lived out in our lives. So Lord, we ask that you give us strength, give us wisdom, keep us faithful, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.